A reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against the enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I abjure you by God. Do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine and the herd, numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The swineherds ran off and told it to the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God, be with us. Bless us, we ask, this morning 
as we sit with your scriptures. We ask for you to come near to us as you have already in our time of worship, and we ask that uh, as you look upon our lives and we sit beneath your loving gaze, that you would be at work in our hearts, in our minds, in our relationships, in our situations, that all that we are, all that we have, all that we bring into this space, that, we, that you would take it up into your loving care and use this time to stir our hearts and our minds that we may love you more deeply and be renewed in hope. We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. So it's that time of year, uh, I, I guess, when spooky stuff is in season. Um, so I live just up the hill from Eastern State Penitentiary over in Fairmount, where um, fall there always means more than simply like foliage, football, and pumpkin spice lattes. When you live up the hill from the Eastern State Penitentiary, every October brings the terror behind the walls haunted house to the neighborhood. It's this elaborate experience that draws thousands of patrons who pay steep ticket prices to get shepherded through this dilapidated prison with actors who play ghoulish-looking zombie wardens and other creepy characters, I'm sure. While those of us who live in the neighborhood know that actually the scariest part of all is the prospect of trying to find parking when you have a thousand new people in the neighborhood. Being drawn toward or repulsed by spooky stuff becomes a strangely observable dynamic this time of year. And perhaps as we just read this text just now that Matt just read for us from the Gospel of Mark, maybe you felt something of a being drawn toward in an intriguing kind of way maybe, or repulsed by in a creepy kind of way, this thing that feels something like the Halloween episode of the Jesus story, right? This encounter with this demon-possessed man. I mean, this is creepy stuff. If this were a movie, it would probably have one of those super intense promotional trailers that have all the parents of young kids like diving for the remote to change the channel before there's some disturbing image that's going to cause nightmares. And it can be a little bit jarring to encounter a story like this in the Bible, unclean spirits and exorcisms and people freaking out. It can be hard to know, like, what to do with a story like this. And for most of us, when we, when we read it, our first impulse is probably to either be kind of drawn toward or repulsed by the spooky stuff. Those who are drawn toward it will often tend to read this text as if its purpose were to pull back the curtain in order to reveal uh, spiritual realities that lie behind the ordinary stuff of life. On the other hand, those who are repulsed by the spooky stuff uh, tend to read or want to read this text or texts like these uh, in a way that deconstructs them as simply examples of some ancient worldview that's now outdated. Right? A worldview that attributed to spiritual forces things that we can now explain in far less spooky ways. And while I think there really is like something to each of those impulses, as in like it's true that the Bible assumes and attests to the reality and activity of spiritual powers in a world, in our world, in such a way that really does like challenge us to be a lot less secular in the way that we think and inhabit the world, and also in that 
like we've learned a lot in the last couple thousand years, right? So the way we make sense of our experience of life in the world, it can't and shouldn't be identical to the way the ancients thought and spoke about things. Both of these interpretive practices have something going for them, yet they both end up falling short because they begin and they end in the wrong place. They both start with the spooky stuff and end up either embracing or rejecting a kind of like Wizard of Oz-esque view of spiritual things in which everything gets attributed directly and simplistically to some like man behind the curtain, if you will. But Mark's point, Mark's point in this episode of the gospel story, it isn't fundamentally to draw our attention to spooky stuff, spiritual stuff, in order to teach us some concrete lesson about how we are to think about these kinds of realities generally in our world today. Mark's point here is very simply to draw our attention to Jesus and to show us a little bit more specifically who Jesus is and what he's doing in this unique historical moment of his earthly ministry and then to help us discern with greater clarity and skill, our own tendencies to be drawn toward or repulsed by Jesus in our own lives today. And I think we'll see that more clearly as we sit with this story just a little bit this morning and give it some breathing room in its own context before we begin to try to figure out, like, what do we do with it, right? How do we pull it toward our own lives? Because sometimes learning to read the Bible is a little bit like learning a new language, or like assimilating into a culture that's not native to you. Have any of you ever tried to do that? Have you ever lived abroad or studied a language in depth enough? Or maybe some of you are doing that here now, coming from somewhere else. Have you ever done that enough to, to like really get the hang of it? For those of you who've done that, who have had that experience, you know that like some of the last things to fall into place, some of the last things you actually begin to catch are like, getting the jokes, right? Or getting the cultural references that belong to a culture that's not yours. That can take a really long time, right? And there's an aspect even of becoming fluent in biblical literacy that's a little bit like that as well because the Bible is loaded with cultural references that belong to a culture that's not our own. And it's loaded with plays on language in languages that are not our own. And this is one of those passages, actually, where we, we actually need some help uh, if we're going to get the references. And so just to begin, Mark sets up this story by telling us that Jesus and his disciples, who are with him in the boat, if you remember the boat that's just gone through the storm, and the storm has been stilled, and they come to the other side of the sea. Uh, they've come to the country of the Gerasenes, and that's significant. Mark's audience would have heard the country of the Gerasenes the way we kind of would hear the area near Pearl Harbor, where when you hear that, you know it's not just a geographic reference, but it invokes something of a memory of something significant that has happened. And so to set the story there in those terms is intentionally to link the drama of what unfolds to the drama of what has unfolded there in the past. 
and to make a connection between stories. The town of Gerasa, as in of the Gerasenes, was the location of an incredibly brutal military campaign as Emperor Vespasian responded to the Jewish revolt by sending one of his generals with cavalry and infantry to kill a thousand young men, capture their families, and burn the city to the ground. This is the place where Jesus is doing this. And not only does Mark set up the story by situating it there, which by the way we know is incredibly intentional because the actual town of Gerasa is probably about 30 miles from where Jesus appears to have landed. So it's a, it's a generalizing of this area of the Gerasenes. It's a very intentional connecting of these dots. But Mark also tells the story by using tons of military language. The word legion, this one, this word that the demon here claims as its name, that had only one meaning in Mark's world. It's a division of Roman troops, right? And then this word for herd, as in like the herd of pigs, is a word that also referred to a group of military recruits, and moreover, it rarely was used in reference to pigs, because pigs don't travel in herds. In verse 13, when Jesus gives permission to the demons to enter the pigs, that word is one that's typically used the way a military officer dismisses troops. And then when the pigs rush down the steep hill, that's the language that's typical of a military charge. In other words, what's going on in this story has a lot to do with the Roman military that is occupying Palestine in the first century. That has like a lot to do with what this story is about. And if we miss that part, we're going to miss the story. There are two episodes in the Gospel of Mark where we see Jesus directly confront evil spirits. And the two stories kind of mirror each other. The first is in chapter 1 where Jesus enters a synagogue, which is the space of the, it's, it's symbolic of the religious establishment, right? There's, it's, a, it's the place where the scribes and the Pharisees exercised their authority. And the second story is right here that we just read. As Jesus crosses the sea and he goes to the other side, to this eastern frontier of the Roman Empire, a place that's very non-Jewish, that's filled with things like pigs and tombs that would be considered unclean by the Jewish law. Jesus comes over here to this place that is symbolically representing of Roman military occupation and very non-Jewish pagan imperial cult world. He comes in there, and in both spaces, when Jesus crosses the threshold into these two spaces, synagogue and military occupation, He's met by someone possessed by an unclean spirit. And the spirit confronts Jesus saying, what do you have to do with us, Jesus? And in both stories, Jesus orders the spirit to come out. And in both cases, people who see it are freaked out and amazed. What Mark gives us in this story is this public and symbolic action of Jesus that's part of this unfolding portrait that Mark is giving us of Jesus as the one God has sent to, quote-unquote, bind the strong man and plunder his house, to use Jesus' words from a couple of chapters ago. This one who's stronger than the evil that holds captive God's beloved world and God's beloved people. 
And there are two establishments that Jesus particularly comes to take to task in Mark's gospel. One is the religious establishment. One is the political establishment. And in both cases in the story, when Jesus crosses over the threshold and enters this space, the same story happens. Once in chapter one, once here. And Jesus exercises his authority over the spirits to drive them out and to begin to do his work in that sphere. He's the one who's come to bind the strong man and plunder his house. How does Mark describe this demon-possessed man in this passage? In verse 3, no one could bind him. And in verse 4, no one had the strength to subdue him. What Jesus does with this man in this story is this public illustration of what he's come to do with all of God's creation, with all of God's people, not just in Israel, but as we now see, even to the ends of the earth, even in the territory across the sea, the conspicuously non-Jewish territory filled with pigs and tombs and all things unclean, even there, Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of God and to drive out the occupying enemy force. Jesus has come to set humanity and the world free. And he's come to restore God's people and God's world to the dignity and the sanity and the wholeness for which he made us. And this man who is oppressed and afflicted, howling and bruising himself with stones, whom Jesus released from his captivity, he's both a person and a symbol. He's an individual with his own story. He's also everyone. He's you, he's me, he's Israel, he's the nations, he's your neighbor, he's all of us. When Jesus comes to this man's region and releases him from captivity, people freak out. People freak out. And what we see is that begging begins, doesn't it? The people who owned all those pigs, first of all, they're furious because their pigs are gone probably a, a ding in their retirement plan, I'm sure. These pigs are plunged into the sea, and they just, you know, the word gets out, it starts spreading around of what this guy's doing, highly disruptive of the status quo, right? Jesus' arrival in this place. They beg him to leave. Go away. We don't want what you bring. Like the demon, their cry is something like, what do you want with us, Jesus? But then there's this man who was healed and he begins to beg Jesus that Jesus would let him stay with him, let him join his group and get back in the boat and ride along with Jesus and be part of the crew. And here's what's so surprising in response. Jesus' response to the two different beggings. To those begging Jesus to leave, he's like, okay. And he leaves. And to the man asking if he can stay, Jesus says, no. No. Go home. Go back to your friends, back to your family, and tell them what you've seen. To me, that's actually the strangest part of the story. But I also think it's perhaps one of the most important little aspects of it for us to reflect on this morning. Because if we think about the liberation that Jesus brings to our lives, and we think about the liberation Jesus brings to the world, I think we have to admit 
it's not what we expect. And often it's not even what we want, especially not what we think we want. If you're anything like me, you live in the tension between wanting Jesus to leave you alone and wanting Jesus to bring the wholeness of all the good stuff right now, right? I want none of it. I want all of it. What I don't want is what he actually brings, which is this living in the experience of this now and not yet of the liberation of God. In some areas of my life, I like the status quo. I'm like, I'm, I'm cruising. I'm happy with the way things are. I don't want God or anyone else to mess with them. I don't want them to take anything away. I don't want to be disrupted in those spaces. And in those spaces, this story pushes me into a place of recognizing that my prayer is something like, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In those spaces, my prayer is a lot more like the prayer of the demons. And I thank God that he has yet to answer that prayer, the prayer of may, may my will be done as I ask to be left alone. But there are these other areas of my life where I'm less content, where my longings or my sense of loss is more at the forefront of my experience, where I feel the weight of what's lacking in me, or feel the weight of what's lacking in my circumstances or in the world. And I just want Jesus to change it all now. Do you know that experience? Of course you do. But that's not how God's kingdom comes on earth, is it? The liberation that Jesus brings is different than what we expect. And it's different than what the people in the story expected as well. You see, the Jewish people, they long for liberation from Rome. They lived under an incredibly unjust system ruled by a colossal jerk who had all the power to do whatever he wanted and often used it to do horrible things to them. They longed for liberation. They longed for God to deliver them once again the way he did way back when, when they were slaves in Egypt and God sent Moses and he brought them out from the big bad iron fist of Pharaoh and brought them into this wilderness moment toward the promised land and drowned the enemy armies in the sea. Mark here presents Jesus as doing just that. Where does the legion go? They're plunged into the sea as they obey the command of Jesus. It's just not the legion they expected. They want Jesus to plunge the Roman chariots into the sea. But Jesus is up to something a little different. As the people longed for deliverance, God's people time and again have looked back on that moment of the exodus as this high point of God's rescue of them and as a vision of what they long for that God would do again. There was another moment in their history where they had been carted off into Babylon and were held there as captives and what they longed for, what the prophets spoke of, would be this new exodus that would happen where God would bring his people out of that slavery and into the land again. 
And there was a later time after that where the people were longing for, for, they were under Roman occupation, under other dynasties as well, longing again. And you hear the same kinds of desires welling up in the people again. God, would you deliver us? Would you send your anointed one to lead us out from oppression and into your land of promise. It's longing for this new exodus. And what we see here is Mark showing us that that's exactly what Jesus is up to. But the liberation he brings is not what's expected. Jesus doesn't bring liberation from political and military tyranny by way of political or military victory. And for that matter, the liberation Jesus brings from economic injustice or from oppression doesn't come by way of redistribution of wealth, at least not in some direct way. And the liberation he brings from religious hypocrisy and spiritual abuse doesn't come by way of religious reform. Jesus sidesteps all of those gains and instead does something far more powerful yet far more subtle than what anyone expects of him. He defeats a greater foe by an altogether greater tactic. He goes the way of the cross. That's what we'll see as the whole story unfolds, is that the way of liberation becomes the going the way of the cross. And in this story, what we see is Jesus speaks, and a new creation begins to dispel this old fallen one. But we're confronted with this reality yet again that it doesn't all happen at once. The man who begs to stay with Jesus is told no, because it's not the right time. There's a story that must unfold. There's a story of history that must unfold upon the earth, and there's a story in this, old man, in this man's life, a story of renewal that must unfold as well. And so this man who experiences deliverance, he wants to say so badly, he wants to ride along, and it's not hard to imagine why, right? I mean, the guy has been liberated and delivered from all that has been afflicting him, and Jesus is the one who's done it, and he's like, out of love and gratitude, he would want to be with him. But also out of like, fear, right? Because this guy is the one guy who's been able to do anything about my problem. I think I want to keep him close. What if they come back, right? So it takes a lot of courage not to cling in this moment. He wants to stay near the one guy he's ever met who could help him out, but it's not the right time. It's not the right time for this mixed community of Jesus' Jewish disciples and these people from outside of the Jewish world to all be brought together in this one family. That moment's coming soon, but it's not quite there because something else has to happen first. Jesus has to go to the cross. He has to suffer and die. He has to become the one from within the people of Israel who would suffer and die for the sins of God's people and then rise to new life as the firstborn of a whole new humanity that would become this new family, that would become this instrument of God's blessing in the earth. That stuff has to happen first. And so Jesus tells this man, now's not the time. Instead, go and tell your friends. And the man goes throughout the 10 towns sharing the news of what God has done with him. The liberation that God brings to us in Jesus, it's not what this guy expected, it's not what we expect. We just want, what, kind of, what do we want? When you want to be liberated, what do you mean by that? Mostly we mean, I want deregulation, right? I want, to be, I want all restraints removed so that I can do what I want. Or I want the fullness of life now so that suffering can stop. But the reality of what God brings to us in Jesus is something altogether different. It's an exodus. 
The enemy is plunged into the sea. The land of promise awaits. And the time between is the wilderness journey. And that's where we live. What's your wilderness? Where do you feel the tension? Where do you live in the reality of longing for more, yet experiencing the reality of a liberation that has actually touched your life now? Do you know that experience? Do you know the one who leads you through that barren land in fellowship with you in your experience of longing, in your experience of loss? Do you know the one who binds the one who threatens to bind us all and who's plundering the house of that strong man? Mark's point here in this story is not to dazzle us with spooky stuff or to make us intrigued. He wants to dazzle us with Jesus. He's revealing to us Jesus who is bigger than our fears, bigger than the powers that hold us captive, bigger than our addictions, bigger than the systems and the games that we play, bigger than all the things out there, the structures, the super systems, all the things that are unjust and wrong that shape human life and the world. He shows us Jesus who is bigger than all of that, that we may be drawn to him and so that we might more clearly see the ways that we resist him as we cling to our status quo or as we refuse to embrace life in the wilderness. Where in your life do you need to experience that liberating love of God for you? The one who actually is bigger the one who actually enters the fray, the one who actually releases you so that you might move forward in courage and faith into a life with God in the wilderness, loving God, loving neighbor, refusing to play the games Jesus refused to play, that you're not working the economic system, that you're not working the religious system, that you're not working your relationships, that you're not working your career track, that you're not working some political game, whatever, but instead that you embrace the way of the cross that is the way of freedom. An entirely different tactic for an entirely different war against an entirely different enemy. This is the life Jesus himself has pioneered. This is what liberation looks like. And what we find as we read the story forwards is that it's not just liberation from our sufferings in the here and now. It is a liberation even from the permanence of death itself. And that the promised land toward which this exodus journey moves as we move through the wilderness is a destination of life in the earth with God forever, life that thrives and life that lasts. And that to take up a life in fellowship with Jesus, moving forward in the way of the cross, is not fundamentally to take up a life that is marked by defeat, but it is to take up a life that is marked by the victory he has won through this mode of living that looks to the whole watching world like defeat. This is what Jesus has done. 
And this is what God is doing in and through Jesus in the earth as he calls a new family to himself, a new humanity to himself, that we would organize our life together and our life in the earth around the life of Jesus who leads us through the wilderness toward the place of promise that awaits. And that as we go, what we have to offer one another, what we have to offer our neighbors is not only the hope of the destination, but fellowship and friendship in the sufferings along the way. That we might be pilgrims in this place, never settling, never making a home here, but pressing forward in faith and courage on this journey, living into the liberty that God has won for us in Christ. That is the dazzling message that Mark is presenting to us here in this Jesus. Not the spooky stuff, but the glorious news that everyone in this room, including me, desperately needs to know. God loves you. God has not given up on you. And your circumstances, the things you suffer, the situations you're in, the obstacles you're up against, the things you fear more than anything else in your life, those things don't speak most truly about where you are now or where you are going. Because Jesus is bigger than all of it. And he is with you. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the dazzling love and power that you reveal to us, that you extend to us, that you touch our lives with in your son, Jesus. We pray that you would meet us in our wilderness journey and give us grace that you would draw us to yourself in such a way that we would not cling so dearly to these things that we don't want you to meddle with in our lives. Or that we would not fix our eyes uh, so impatiently on the fullness of that which you promise in such a way that we can't embrace the reality of the wilderness journey that lies between here and there. But instead, would you meet us right where we are? Would you hold us and lift us and comfort us and spur us on. And as you lead us through the wilderness, would you be remaking us as a people who live like you in the world and participate with you in this victory that you've won over evil, that we would stop giving ourselves over to a defeated foe and begin to experience for ourselves and offer to our neighbors the goodness and the justice and the joy and the beauty and the peace that you have won in Christ. Bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.